Acts chapter 21 and 22 this morning. Let's begin with the question, what is a testimony? What is a testimony? You probably shape an answer to that question based on two contexts. One of them would be a court of law. Perhaps you've watched some of the shows that deal with courtroom scenes. The other context would be the context of the church. If you've grown up in the church, then you're probably pretty familiar with the language of a testimony. But what do we mean when we say testimony? Simply put, a testimony is a statement of your experience or observation. So in a courtroom, your testimony may be about your experience in some event, like a car accident, for example. In church, your testimony would be about your experience or observation, about how you've seen God work. And most often when you hear somebody ask about your testimony, they're asking about how God worked in your salvation. So while that language may sound churchy, just realize when someone's asking about a testimony, or does anyone have a testimony, that's just the opportunity for a witness to take the stand and give a statement about their experience or observation of what God is doing. Now, let's clarify our thinking about our testimony in the church context with a few questions that will help us approach Acts chapter 21 and 22. First question is this, is your testimony the gospel? Is your testimony the gospel? To which we would answer, no, no. Sharing your testimony is not the same as sharing the gospel, the biblical unfolding of God's plan of redemption. Your testimony is your statement of experience. It may speak of God or of grace or of getting saved, but it might not express the actual gospel message, which isn't in and of itself problematic. We're just describing opportunities you might have to share the story of how you became a Christian or how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And in telling that story in its various forms, various lengths, you may or may not include the actual language of the Bible on how God saves sinners. The gospel, then, proper, is an articulate statement of how exactly God saves. It's not your experience and story. It's the actual truth of the Bible, what we call in our study of Acts, the gospel. They went everywhere sharing the good news. And the good news was not, hey, my life has changed. The good news is God changes lives. So the gospel has that truth of the Bible about salvation. You might summarize it. God is merciful to save sinners in Christ. 
You might say God provides salvation to sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Or through repentance from sin and faith in Jesus, you can be made right with a holy God. Or we sing another form of it, holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live again. So your testimony may include the gospel. It may point to the gospel. It might pave the way to speak the gospel. But it is not the actual gospel. So keep that straight in our minds. The good news is not that you have been saved. The good news is that God saves sinners. So we, we're right to distinguish them because at times we can think, I'm, I'm being a good witness, I'm sharing the gospel, and your conversation may have only been about how you came to faith and how you go to church and you invited your coworker to come with you. That, that's all good, and, and that's, that's heading in the right direction. You're doing exactly what you should be doing, but just know there is still that unfolding of the full truth of God doing this saving work through Jesus, that is our end goal. That's what we're aiming for. Let your personal story or testimony serve that great end. So another question. Is one person's testimony better than another? As in, oh, you got to come and hear the speaker we're having in our church. He has a great testimony. You know, you hear some dramatic story of a guy that was saved out of gang life in downtown Los Angeles and after a life of crime and violence is gloriously saved and all the people that grew up in church and were gloriously saved are thinking, I can't measure up to that. That's a great story. Is one person tes person's testimony really better than another's? And again, we would answer, no, no, since every Christian's testimony is a resurrection story, we all have a great testimony. You see, if you're a believer in Jesus, then it's because you were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, just like the illustration of Lazarus in the grave and the voice of Jesus is, come out. And he obeys and is walking out of death into life. The reality is sometimes the ruinous effects of sin are more obvious to the eye test. If you were to see me as, you know, uh, an eight-year-old in a Christian home, in a Christian school, going to a good church, you know, my sin and its ruin may not have looked to the eye as ruinous as the gang member in Los Angeles. But just, just recognize that's kind of the shallow eye test. We're just seeing the effect of sin being manifest. And one tends to look worse than the other. So we all understand that. But in your mind, focus and boil that down. Even if you hear someone say, wow, that's a great testimony. You don't have to jump all over them and say, well, that's not true. Um, 
just in your mind, be remembering we were all dead in sin and we were brought to life. That's a great story. That's something you can give a witness to. Your experience is such that you should speak of that. So is your testimony the gospel? No. Is one testimony better than another? No. So question number three, am I saying that you shouldn't share your testimony? And again, the answer is no. From our text, we will see that our testimony, our story of coming to faith in Christ is a useful tool in spreading the good news. If I were to ask you to go to Acts 22, which was read for us already, and underline the theological elements of the gospel, you'd, you'd get started reading and you'd, you'd read it again and then you'd stop and slow down and, and you'd try to go back. Where does it talk about we were dead in sin and through repentance and faith we are made alive in Christ? You, you wouldn't find that there. So what we're seeing here is how Paul is using his story, his testimony, to get to that place where he shares the gospel. Now, there's, there's hints of it here, mind you, just as there would be in your telling your story. But not every conversation you'll have about what God has done for you may culminate with the actual message of the gospel. But just remember, that's the goal. The first time you meet your neighbor, you might only get their name and vocation, and you might happen to tell them that, you know, you've lived here for a little bit, or maybe you tell them you do go to church, you, How far do you get in that first conversation? But as you keep talking to them, you have a goal in mind. And that's what I want us to see in this text, that our story of becoming a Christian, our story, our testimony, if you will, is designed to serve the gospel message. We want to see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. Remember, you are a witness What if God calls you to the stand this week as a witness to testify to your experience or to your observations about him? Are you ready to speak of his saving power? Are you ready to speak at least of his faithful care, his sufficient grace? Be ready when you're called as that witness. Be ready to tell your story of faith in Jesus. That's our theme this morning. And I want to give you three observations from our text about your witness. Just out of curiosity, has anybody ever taken the stand in a courtroom, been sworn in and given your statement? Can I see those hands? A few? Oh, quite a few of you, really. Um, that, I'm actually surprised by that. I always think that would be a fascinating experience. I made it as juror number nine once in a pretty serious trial, and the night before my big debut as number nine, uh, there was a plea bargain, and I didn't make it into the proceedings. But I just thought it would be fascinating to be a part of that system. So to to actually walk forward and take the stand, um, some of you have done that. Uh, You have a vivid picture in your mind of what it means to, to bear witness. Maybe you were prepped before you took the stand on the kind of questions you would be asked, how to give succinct answers. 
In a sense, we're looking at Acts 22 and we're getting prepped for our witness with these three observations. Number one, as you witness, engage people strategically. I want us to look at Paul's behavior here and see how he engages people strategically. And there's three elements of this strategy that I want us to consider. The first is that we should be assertive with our witness. In, in our manner, we should be very optimistic. We should be very on edge, ready. We're, ju- we're just ready to speak of our experience or observation about God. Your experience and how he's meeting you in your need, how he saved you, or your observation, it may be something from that very day that you encountered in the word and you're ready. There is an assertiveness where you are going to insert into conversations your observations and experiences with God. Paul, in our story, you remember, if you were here last week or you won't remember if you were here last week, so let me review it. Paul has gone to the temple as part of a ritual cleansing process with some others in order to kind of accommodate the Jewish concern that he was anti-custom, anti-Jew, anti-law, anti-Moses, anti-temple, all of it. Well, unfortunately, the plan fails. It doesn't appease them. Uh, Other Jews come in and they create a riot over this anti-Jewish pro-Gentile speaker, the Apostle Paul. A riot breaks out right there on the Temple Mount, and the Romans come racing out of the fortress of Antonia. If you were to look on your Bible map, it's probably there. If you have pictures, it would be there. A huge Temple Mount, there's the temple, and right there on the northwest corner is a massive Roman fortress that overlooks the whole Temple Mount. So a couple hundred soldiers come running down this massive staircase onto that temple area. They rescue Paul, not out of the kindness of their heart, but just to make peace so they can figure out what's going on. And that's kind of where our story picks up this morning. The mob's crying away with him, and Paul is being brought back up the steps to take him into that fortress and... We see his assertiveness. First, he speaks to the Roman, may I say something to you? But his point is in verse 39. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, bear in mind, this was the mob of people that were just bludgeoning him, trying to kill him. And rather than trying to get away from the hostile mob, He is pleading with the Romans to allow him to have access to speak to them. I mentioned last week that there's a lot in in the study of Paul's arrests and imprisonments that mirrors the life of Christ as he went through a similar process. And as we hear Christ in mercy praying to the Father to forgive these, his captors, because they don't know what they're doing, Here we have Paul, rather than saying, good riddance, get me away from these people, he's like, no, they need to hear why I love them, why I'm trying to unite the church around Jesus Christ. 
He's asserting his desire to make truth known into a pretty antagonistic environment. The lesson to be learned is that for many of us, as soon as things get a little anti-morality, anti-Christian, anti-truth or Bible, we tend to think, oh well, they don't believe this and I, I don't want to stir things up. When maybe it's just the opposite. In our manner, we should be assertive with truth, with the gospel, with what we know as hope, the answers to the brokenness of our world. When we remember who these people are that are so antagonistic to the gospel, when we see them as souls in darkness, blinded by the God of this world, then it's not good riddance, it's, No, can I have another opportunity to speak? In other words, we stare into that face of antagonism, at times even hostility, belittling, and rather than taking it personally and being fearful or offended, it's our opportunity to be assertive. The gospel itself is assertive. As Paul tells his story, it's a blinding light that knocks him off his horse and arrests him on his way to arrest others. Believe that the gospel is assertive and now it's put into your hands as this assertive task to make good news known. Paul says, permit me to speak. I don't want to get away from them. I want to speak to them. There's a second element of his strategy. Be defensive. Be defensive. Now, when you hear this in conjunction with be assertive, it almost sounds contradictory. But being defensive is not meant to be the opposite of assertive. Rather, being defensive is the reason for our assertiveness. Because by defense, we mean standing for what is true and right. Look what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 22. He's now addressing the Jewish people. The Romans have allowed him a voice. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Peter would use this word. We read it together this morning in our affirmation of faith. Be ready always to give an answer or a defense. The word in Greek is apologia, from which, of course, we get our English word apology. Now, not the apology so much as I'm sorry for doing something to you. That's kind of what it's become known as. That's the definition we we use colloquially. But in its original meaning, it was a defense. It was as if you were building a wall and holding this ground. This is true, and I'm not going to budge on this. So Paul says, hear the defense that I now make. He's not going to accommodate their ideas. He's going to stand for what is true. So it's not be assertive, offensive, and then somehow be defensive, No, it's you are assertive because you are defensive. You are standing for what is true. That's where your boldness comes from. 
Many of you are not people that love conflict and are looking for those opportunities to engage in the verbal back and forth or the logical reasoning. But I'm not saying become that person. I'm saying wrap your mind around the good news and be assertive with it. Don't compromise it. Stand for what is true and right. Don't back down. And that kind of confidence in what God has said is true is what makes you assertive. And in this way, it's not about, well, some people are good witnesses because they're people people and they're extroverts and they like conversation. I'm not one of them, therefore I don't witness like that. But that's not what the text is saying. The Bible never tells us if Paul's an introvert or an extrovert. It just tells us what he did in obedience to the command to be a witness. The point that I want us to see from Paul's defense is that you don't have to back down from what is true. Not only you don't have to, but you shouldn't. And in our culture, that's not going to be easy because it just seems like everything they want to talk about is anti-truth. But marriage has a biblical definition. Male does mean male and female means female. Our DNA cries out God's good design. Abortion is not a matter of freedom or choice or health or women's health. It's about life. And we know destroying life is wrong. So we we just can't backstep anywhere on these issues. If we surrender Genesis 1, then what right do we have to argue after Romans 1 that there's a Romans 3 that talks about sinners and salvation that's found in Jesus Christ? If it's true, we make our stand. Again, we have no point here that says be antagonistic or be arrogant or rude, but we do need to be assertive because we are standing for truth. So in our strategy, we should be assertive. Let me speak. That should be in your mind. I want to I I say something. I want to help them see what's true and right. Be defensive. I'm not backing down from what is true. That doesn't mean you always have to say something. Doesn't mean you have to override every family gathering and just be announcing truth. There is There's all kinds of need for the Holy Spirit in our assertiveness and our defensiveness. But I think if we yielded to the Holy Spirit, we might find out we would be more assertive and more defensive. Our third element of our strategy is be relational. Keep your attention on people, individual people. Paul could easily be done with the mob but he couldn't be done with those that he's calling brothers and fathers, those who were his countrymen. He saw the individual Jewish faces. We need to be relational, knowing that people are in desperate need of a savior. So find ways to relate to the people that cross your path this week. I want you to see how Paul relates to the Romans. Back in 21, verse 37, as he's being hauled up the steps 
toward the barracks, he says to the tribune, may I say something to you? And we don't catch it all in the narrative, but you can almost see them all stop and the tribune turn and look at them and say, do you know Greek? When Paul said that, it was in this beautiful, fluent Greek that the Romans would appreciate. And they had to ask, how is that possible? Are you not that Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, in a sense, no, I'm not that guy. Can you grab me a little less tightly then? I'm not the Egyptian stirring up assassins. I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul's a smart guy. And by smart, I mean he lived with a strategy, a strategy that would serve the gospel. And he knew the value of relating to people. He used the Greek language. He references his hometown as part of the Roman Empire in order to have an in with the Romans. And it works. And then Paul speaks to the Jews. And in verse 40, it says that he addressed them in the Hebrew language, which got their attention. When they heard that, it says they they quieted down even more. And his address begins with brothers and fathers. Now, that may have gone over some of their heads because they're still fuming mad, but it, it probably had a calming effect on some of them as he identified as family. And yep, we might bicker about some things, but we're family. I'm a Jew too, he says. Look at verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. That's interesting because the Jews that were most antagonistic that started the riot were from Asia. They weren't even from Jerusalem. So Paul is digging in deep here to connect with the core of the Jews in Jerusalem, defending their temple and their way of life. And he says, I was brought up right here with you in this city. And then he drops another bomb, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great leading minds of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership body. That's, that's a big deal. People, even if they're huffing and puffing, would have to say, well, maybe I'll listen just for a minute. Because he just referenced his teacher. He's he's kind of earning the right. He's proving why he should be listened to. And what's fascinating is he is speaking to Jews who are agitated. And what does he say? In his telling of his story, I am a Jew who was agitated as well. You're agitated about this way, this new religious sect. I was too. His his strongest point of relating to an agitated Jewish crowd is his history of being a Jew who was agitated. And, And what would calm such agitation? He goes on to give a solution to that great problem, the encounter with Jesus Christ. 
This relational approach could be summarized with this little phrase, build a bridge. Build a bridge. Use any and every aspect of your God-ordained journey for the purpose of building a bridge that connects to people you talk to. Now, if you were to pick up secular communication books, you would hear about relating to your audience, whether it's as soon as you step on the stage or if you're in the workforce as a boss. How do you connect with people so that there's not this big gap between them and us, the worker bees and and the leadership? This is good for parenting. It's good for friendships. In our day of texting and social media via devices, that's how we communicate. A lot of basic principles of communication are kind of becoming old statues that topple over and break in pieces. We don't communicate well. We're seeing a master class on how to take literally a language of a culture and and to use it for the advantage of sharing the gospel. You might think it sounds like gimmicky almost to to talk up with small talk, somebody waiting in line. But there's no such thing as gimmick or small talk when your mind is focused on they need to hear the gospel. How could I have a voice with this person? How could I connect with them? How, How could I build a bridge to that person that I could walk over and hand deliver the message that Jesus saves sinners. So don't don't sell yourself short in those relationships in the workplace that might only be lunch with somebody down in the cafeteria once a month. You don't know where that ends if your goal is the gospel. Be ready to engage people in relationships and use every part of your life that is valuable in building that bridge. It might be your family background or upbringing. You hear something of their family story and you immediately can zoom in on that and say, hey, I I, I was brought up Catholic too. Oh, hey, you're from Pennsylvania? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Pennsylvania. And immediately like a wall falls down and that person's ready to talk and and you're building a bridge. I'm not saying they're going to immediately ask you, hey, tell me how you became a Christian and how I can get saved. But I'm telling you, what if your conversation, having been built over time, does produce that response from them? Then all that bridge building would have been worth it. Paul here in just a moment is trying to connect with his audience, be it Roman, be it Jewish, Because he has a message he wants them to hear. Use your education, your hobbies, your interests to connect to people. What are your strengths? What's your field of knowledge? What experiences do you have, good or bad? What trials have you been through? What joys have you experienced? You you should realize you have like an encyclopedia and it's your life. And in any part of that life, God may use that to help you to relate to somebody else and give you a hearing for the gospel. That's our strategy. Engage others strategically for the sake of the gospel. Now, point number two answers these questions. Like, why do we engage 
strategically? Why do we build a bridge? And the answer is obviously to share the good news. And that's what Paul starts moving towards. Number two, as a witness, follow the rescue storyline. Remember, it's a great story. You were dead in sin and you were rescued by Jesus Christ. The storyline has basically three main chapters. Number one, your life before faith in Christ. Look at verse three. Laying that foundation, I'm this Jew, brought up in the city, educated by Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He's, he's identifying his life before. And he's not, he's not dismissing it or diminishing or insulting. He's just saying, I know what it is because I was there. There was a zeal. There was a passion. But it was for a righteousness that was apart from the righteousness that's found in Christ. Zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. Those, those are strong words. Elsewhere, he would say, I compelled people to blaspheme. In other words, he tortured them in order to get them to recant their profession of faith. He persecuted the way to death, he says, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He has just moved himself right into the center of the Jewish opposition by calling on their leaders to bear witness to his account that he was zealous for what he considered to be righteousness. He goes on to say that they're the ones who commissioned him on this journey to Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's telling the story of where he was before faith in Christ. And that should be in your mind. As you are able to cross that bridge now that you have strategically built and you're, you're ready to begin getting into your experience of faith, your, your witness of the actual good news meaning something to you, you can remind them of where you were before you came to faith in Christ. You say, well, I don't have, I wasn't in the gang and I didn't go to prison and, you know, I didn't embezzle money and I didn't do all those bad things. Like, what do I tell them? Well, you can describe what sin looks like in, in even young selfishness and disobedience. You can describe the emptiness of your life, your self-righteousness, perhaps. I went to church Every week, and I did everything my parents wanted me to do, and I was in a Christian school, and I kept all the rules. But that doesn't mean God saw me as righteous. So what was your life like before Christ? Some of you can remember pretty well that that life before Christ may have seemed glamorous or fun, but it was the shine was wearing off. The, the reaping was coming due. 
And sin was being proven to be not so good as it promised. Those are the kind of things that you need to think through. How would you describe your life before Christ? Again, for some of you, it's very experiential. For others, it's going to seem a little more theological in the sense of, I don't know how to describe the badness because it wasn't as visible. But theologically, I was a rebel against God. I thought I was good enough, which means I despised any thought that I had to have a savior. I'll do this myself. I'll just be a good person. And that might resonate with someone you're speaking to as much as the dramatic tale of conversion. What is your story before faith in Christ? Secondly, we have the chapter of encountering Christ. Paul, in verses 6 through 9, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Now, I've not met anyone in this room with a similar testimony. Maybe there was a light. I don't know for you. Uh, I'm just saying he's giving his story of how he encountered Christ, and it's pretty dramatic. So you need to figure out how you share your story of encountering Christ. Because that's what it is. It's how God worked in your life. Your witness regarding the story of encountering Christ will be different than someone else's. Paul goes on to say, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the the whole theme of conviction. Where we hear in John that the Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So whether you were six years old or 16 or 56 when you were saved, your story of encountering Jesus Christ might be you felt guilty for the way you had lived your life. You started hearing truth from this coworker, or maybe you read something or heard something on the radio and you felt this conviction. Suddenly, you didn't feel as good about your lifestyle as you used to. What is your story of encountering Christ? Verse 8, Paul answers, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Who are you, Lord? Why do I feel this way? Maybe that coworker you invited or invited you to church and you went with him. That's our text there where it's like, Who is this? Why do I feel this way? What's going on? We share our story beginning with our life before Christ. And then there's that time period, we might call it, of encountering Christ. The persistent witness of that good friend. Tenaciously pursuing you, perhaps. Curbing every bad idea that you're throwing out there, every argument for why your life is just fine, and they're always there with another answer. And lovingly, and perhaps a little bit irritably, because you're tired of hearing it, but you were feeling the weight of that truth. You were in that second part of your story, encountering Christ. And maybe your language is, by God's grace, I began to realize. Or, by God's grace, I... I realized I was craving something more than I had. 
You might say, I read in the Bible, or my friend showed me this verse. God put this person in my life, and they invited me, or told me, or challenged me. This is the language of chapter 2 in the rescue story. God was doing his work of drawing you to faith. You might speak of your guilt. You might speak of repenting, uh, getting to the end of chapter 2, giving up my sin because I knew I couldn't save myself. I needed the righteousness of Christ. So I believed on Jesus as Savior and Lord. Chapter 2 can have all kinds of great parts of your story. It's where you look back and you realize all the voices, all the times God's word was somehow infiltrating my mind. It might be fun for you to give some thought to telling your story in these couple of chapters. Third chapter then would be living for Christ. Paul, after telling us what he was before, then how he encountered Christ, gives us the story after the encounter. Verse 10, I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So he goes, he meets Ananias, who gives him some direction. And if we could go back to Acts 9, we'd read of all that direction that was given, and we'd see that Paul was set aside to be this messenger to the Gentiles. His life now in Christ, with Christ, for Christ. And that's where in your story you tell what's changed or how God is changing you. It's an engaging part of your story to be able to say, I repented of sin and I put my faith in Christ And I assure you, I am not perfect, but God is doing his work in me. Gives hope. Hope in that simple rescue story of my life before Christ, how I encountered Christ, and what it means now to be in Christ. What's my purpose now? What brings me joy now? What is God doing in me now? Tell your story. Now, just a note regarding verse 16. It's part of Paul's testimony of his conversion, his encounter with Ananias, who helps him and kind of is steering him now towards usefulness in the church. And Ananias is recorded as telling him there in verse 16, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I just want to give you three thoughts here to think through baptism and salvation. Because some will look at this text and be confused thinking, oh, once you get baptized, your sins are washed away. Well, that's not the teaching of the scripture. So we want to know what is Ananias saying when he says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Three thoughts to just put in your minds, and if you want to talk about it later, I'd be happy to do that. One, remember what the picture of baptism is. At least in part, baptism is an external picture of the internal reality of cleansing from sin. There are other symbols in baptism, our identification as such, but it is a washing ritual. 
That's why it is used uh, as it is in the New Testament. It's a washing ritual, so it is picturing cleansing. Almost, we would say, at its simplest meaning. A ceremonial washing of hands that the priest would do, a ceremonial dipping of pots as they would do. All these things were called baptism. So remember first that Ananias is saying, yes, baptism is a symbol of washing sin away. That's what baptism demonstrates. Number two, when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, we realize that Paul understood quite clearly the difference between the sign of baptism and the saving power of the gospel. So much so that he said, I don't want to have anything to do with baptism. I've been called to preach Christ. His words were, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Was he saying baptism's not important? To the contrary, in their day, even more than ours, Baptism was closely linked with salvation. It's almost as as if you couldn't get saved without immediately plunging into the waters. Think Ethiopian eunuch. He's saved, he says, well, what keeps me from being baptized? Clearly, the gospel presented to him included an identification with Christ in baptism. So in the mindset of the day, these things happened almost simultaneously. If you're going to say you're a Christian, then Get baptized. Picture that washing from sin and your identification in the life, death, and burial, or and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul was clear. Baptism contributed nothing to salvation. He was content to say, I'm called to preach the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Others can baptize. Others can come and follow up on that discipleship and explain all that teaching I'm focused first and foremost on the gospel itself. So our text is not confusing. Does baptism add to our salvation or accomplish it? No, Paul understood exactly what baptism was. Here, it's just being linked with that symbolic washing away of sin. Show everyone that sin has been cleansed by Jesus by being baptized. And most clearly, the third point is right in our text in verse 16. That phrase, calling on his name. I know a little bit of grammar once again. Uh, It's a participle, which means it's describing one of those actions that came earlier in the sentence. So the actions earlier are, rise and be baptized and wash away your sin. That last phrase describes how that happens. How do you wash away your sin? And if we were strictly interpreting the Greek into English, which we we don't often do with participles, our text would read this way. Rise and be baptized, or, and be baptized and wash away your sin, having already called on the name of the Lord. It's a past participle. It's saying this already happened. That's why I'm telling you to be baptized and demonstrate your sin is washed away because you have already called on the name of the Lord. So 
that text can, can trip us up, especially if you encounter folks that are believe in baptismal regeneration. You put your faith in Christ by the grace of God, but it's not until you're baptized that that final act is accomplished. We don't see that in the scripture. And even this text is telling us he had already believed in Jesus and is now being told to be baptized. One final observation for your witness. As you witness... Trust God with the results. Paul has just told his story, his testimony. He was a self-righteous Jew, zealous, but misguided. And God saved him, arrested him, pierced the darkness with the light that shines from the face of Christ, Corinthians would tell us. What a great story. Before Christ, encountering Christ, now I'm called to live for Christ and to share the gospel even to the Gentiles. And as soon as he says that word, everything blows up again. Look over to verse 22. This was not read earlier. We stopped at Paul sharing his story. Verse 22 says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then... They raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. Not just imprison him, silence him, but kill him. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune steps in again. The riot breaks out again with these customary expressions of disdain, of hatred. So it's almost like we spent the first 40 minutes of the sermon saying, get out and share your story. Be a witness. This will be great. But our story ends in the text with, they kind of listened and then they thought, this is nuts. This guy is insane. I don't want anything to do with him. You are so backward. You're so old-fashioned. You are so stuck in cultural religion of the past. You are out of touch with the times. All the stuff we would hear today, just in a different way. Your co-worker's probably not going to throw his quarter zip sweatshirt up in the air and then find dust bunnies to throw in the air. That meant something to them. That's not the opposition you'll probably face. But you're going to get looks and you're going to get a little bit of pity almost that you're so backward, that you're so old-fashioned, that you're stuck in the past on sexuality and marriage and gender and everything else, standards for your kids. You're going you're gonna to have people just shocked by what you would say you believe and the way you live. And all we can say is trust God with the results. He called you to be a witness. Celebrate that. Implement your strategy. Be assertive. Stand for truth. But do it as you relate to people. Building that bridge because you have an answer to give them. But remember, even when you share the actual good news of that story of rescue in Jesus, sometimes you'll be met with an incredulous look 
They were listening, and then they find out this makes no sense at all to them. I don't want to hear it anymore. And some of you may have been told by family or friends, listen, I, I really like you, but I just don't want to hear any more about your religion. I, I don't need that. I'm happy to hang out with you, but don't bring that stuff up. And that's exactly what our text is preparing us for. Rather than engage with the story or ask questions or try to poke holes in Paul's arguments, they unleash hatred and demand that that position be silenced. And as we prayed for the persecuted church, that's what happens around the world. And it's almost like Daniel's story of seeing the handwriting on the wall. We should be looking around in our culture and realizing You know, when it's called hate speech or when you're considered dangerous as a parent because you won't let your kids switch genders, you start realizing, wait a minute, they might actually say that we don't have the right to parent, we don't have the right to gather, we don't have the right to believe something that is so contrary to what they think is right. People may not accept our witness, but the point is this. When witness, your witness seems to be a failure, remember, one, we never know the impact of our witness, even when it seems to be rejected. That's the power of the gospel, not your witness. But if you witness to the truth, you don't know what that seed does in a heart. Dormant, perhaps, for a long time. Dormant, even as they shout over your witness with all their nonsense. You never know what your witness will do in another life. And secondly, the success of a witness is defined by telling the truth, not the outcome the jury brings back. A witness simply testifies to what they experienced or what they saw. Therein is success this week when we proclaim what we know of Jesus, what he means to us, what we've seen him do. So rejoice. God asks you to share your experience and observations about him. He doesn't ask you to save sinners. You can't save the children in your household. You can't save the coworker, the neighbor, the extended family member, but you can witness to them. And believe that God uses your witness in his saving of sinners. So we are his witnesses. And Paul, by this account recorded for us, by his life, reminds us that this week we need to engage people strategically. Not if something happens, maybe I'll have to say something. No, but assertively engage people. Why? Because you have a rescue story that they need. And that is success. Whatever comes of it, you trust God with the results. And sometimes the harvest is there. Sometimes you're just reaping a seed that has been watered before. And other times there will be blatant rejection, but that is in God's hands. That's not your problem. But it is your problem if you're called to be a witness and you stay in the gallery and refuse to take the stand. You can't do that. That's contempt. 
It's contempt for the gospel that we love and we sing of, and now we have to share. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story about telling a story. It reminds us that in these human relationships, we have multiple opportunities to share truth and to share Christ. Our great need is the Spirit's help to get from all the small talk and all the common points of relating to the truth of Jesus. And so would you help us with that? Would you make us wise as Jesus was to speak of spiritual realities and religion with Nicodemus and then in the very next story to be able to speak to a woman at the well about the brokenness of life? but to be able to tell both the scholar and the downtrodden how Jesus is the answer. So ready us. Take us into your word. Train us, equip us to be this multifaceted, ready witness. Because we have a story to tell, and it's a good one. We thank you for it, for what it's meant in our lives for these years that we've known you as our Savior and our Lord. Bless our witness this week, we pray, so that Jesus would be glorified in his saving power. We ask this in his name. Amen.